0: Let's open our Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We are in chapter 4, verse 7 through 11, making our way through this this book. Uh, And for any of you that maybe this is your first Sunday with us, right in the middle of the series, I can catch you up in a matter of seconds. This book was written by the Apostle Peter to a bunch of Christians scattered throughout an area called Asia Minor, the poignant part of this book is that it was written to a bunch of believers who felt the tension between what they believed and where they lived, okay? They believed that they were called into that context, called into the cities in which they lived, and yet their, their, their beliefs, their faith, the, the principles of the kingdom, the things that drove them seemed to be uh, completely opposed to the environment in which they found themselves. And uh, for some of them, that resulted in persecution, uh, imprisonment, all sorts of different things. And so the, the unspoken question of this book is, how do we do it? How do we pull it off? How do we live as Christians in a city that is perhaps opposed to uh, the, some of the things that we believe uh, and some of those, those principles of the kingdom? And Peter writes this book to answer that question. Here's how to navigate the tension. And for many, uh, many chapters, a lot of that has had to do with the theme of suffering. Uh, Whether it's enduring uh, hardship, or enduring persecution, or even not like an outward form of suffering, but inward, that of self-denial. We looked at that last week. Whether it's denying what we want for the good of the kingdom of God. Those are all types of things that have come up in this book, but Peter Is continuing in chapter four uh, to enlighten the hearts and minds of believers, not only in the first century in Asia Minor, but here in Santa Barbara with believers that have have gathered around Christ uh, this morning. And he begins, he spent we spent last week looking at that first paragraph where he essentially says, You used to live a certain way, now you don't anymore. Uh, and he encourages and presses believers to continue in that lifestyle. Now he turns a slight corner in verse 7. And I'm just going to read from verse 7 all the way through verse 11. And we'll just start to dig in. First Peter chapter 4 verse 7 through 11. The apostle Peter says this. The end of all things is at hand. as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before You, as we often do, week in and week out, to humbly receive the Word implanted. And we ask that as we read and study Your Word, You would... You would Enliven our hearts and minds, not only to understand it, to, but to deeply, earnestly desire to walk in it. For that, Lord, we need the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we ask just for a fresh filling of your Spirit in this church today. For those who are tired, for those who are worn out, for those who feel like they're going through a religious routine, for all of those different things. We pray that the Spirit of God would blow through this building and through our souls today that we would never be the same. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. I love how Peter starts the the, the first paragraph of this, this section of Scripture. The end of all things is at hand. There have been countless times throughout my life where I had... Wished someone had told me that. The end of all things is at hand. I remember, uh, excuse me. There's one of them. Pardon. End of my voice is at hand. I remember when uh, the last installment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy came out. and (laughs) Yes, incredible. Until the end, when there were 15 endings at the end. And I remember sitting in the theater, you know, wanting to go home. I'm looking at my, my clock, like this thing is like three and a half hours already. Like, where is the end of all things? I want it to be at hand. Some of you perhaps have been quoting this very verse in your minds, looking at uh, little kids walking around parks with their iPhones playing Pokemon Go. Perhaps you've been running into a few of them. Perhaps they've been running into you. But certainly we'd be able to, you know, open up, any headline, any newspaper, the television, uh, the the hashtag trends on Facebook and look at the state of the world and the state of our communities and the state of our society and our culture and see terror and racism and violence and all sorts of different uh, disturbing things and certainly we would all look at those things and perhaps you've been saying this as well, where is the end of all of this? I'm longing for the end of all of this stuff. It certainly feels like we are what some may call the end times, right? The, uh, I think, though, you know, for the past 2,000 years, we've just used that phrase to refer to anything that's hard. It's always been hard, you know? So this is the end times. 1,000 years ago is the end times. 20 years ago is the end times. But certainly, we, we, I, I don't think I would be overstepping to say that it's been a little much. It wasn't just this last week that a, a bus plowed into a, a, a bunch of people in a, a small a town of France during uh, what's the equivalent of their 4th of July celebration, killing over 80 people, almost 90 people in a, in a terror attack. I just remember looking at that, going like, we just prayed for something like last Sunday, <laughs> Oh, you know, and then we prayed for something the Sunday before that, and like every Sunday there's something that just makes my heart sink, and perhaps you've been feeling the same way. Maybe you're just sick of looking at the news, because it's never good. Like, you never turn on the news, CNN, and it's like, look, a cookie, you know, or come pet this puppy. <laughs> it's never that. It's just an endless flow of war and violence and hatred, and perhaps... You and I could be in the same room saying the same thing. Where, where's the end? Where's the end of all of this? Many people, when they've been encountering you know, some of these things that have been happening in our world, you know, have varying degrees of reaction. Some will just turn, turn out, uh, tune out entirely. Just turn television off, not think about it, go to the gym, you know, go for a walk, just kind of drown it out. Others get extremely angry, they're blowing up, hatred, divisions, escalating tensions. Others tend to want to escape, perhaps medicate, what we might call the end times. There's varying degrees of reaction that we see, from television to maybe our friends, but the Christian has been given a pre-made reaction by the Apostle Peter, who was writing under the authority of the Holy Spirit. We are called not to run away from the things in the world, nor are we called to react out of anger and bitterness to the things of the world. We are called into all of those disturbing environments. We're supposed to be here. That's been been this letter, like every single verse. We're supposed to be here. It's hard. It's not always a cakewalk. Christianity isn't what they often... uh, 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 sell to you on television sometimes it's it's very difficult and it doesn't mean that you're failing at christianity because you're suffering in fact jesus promised that the faithful would incur, uh, would incur suffering they would encounter it because of the fallenness of this world and so we're called not to run away we're not called to be angry at people but we are called to be in the midst of all of those things but with an altogether different stance than the rest of the world. We are supposed to have, looking at all of these things, whether it's terrorism or racism or a bus driver or a school shooting or someone across town that keeps aggravating us or our family or any of those things, we are to approach those things as Christians with clear and controlled thinking. I'm getting that from verse 7. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. The end of all things is at hand. I want you to be clear and controlled in the way that you think. It's as if Peter is warning us, he's getting us ready to engage. And like any athlete, like any uh, uh, musician or artist, like anyone who has a craft, you don't just waltz into game day just half-asleep. Like any professional, like any athlete, like any musician, like any entrepreneur, we go into that incredibly tense day of our lives, that important day of our lives, with absolutely clear thinking, for the end of all things is at hand. But we do it, listen to this, we think this way because when we say the end of all things, we're thinking of a different end than most of the world, You might watch movies that are about the end times, perhaps they're about Armageddon or any of those things that are about the end of the world. And the same theme over and over is that the world is going to be destroyed with you along with it. The end that Peter and the rest of the Bible speaks about is not according to Hollywood, but it's according to God's terms. When the Bible speaks about the end, it speaks about it in the most glorious terms imaginable. The end of all things is the source of your hope and mine. I'm not talking about weird prophecy stuff that, uh, that sometimes people obsess with, that we get annoyed with, like, oh, the uh, end of the world is going to happen on May 14, 2012. Well, I got that wrong. I'll try again. It's like the lottery. I'm not talking about that kind of weird stuff. When Peter speaks about the end of all things, he's referring to a particular age that we are living in right now, where all that needs to happen in redemptive history has happened other than Christ's second return. And so in this sense, it's imminent. Christ's soon and coming return is just right there. It could be tomorrow. It could be a thousand years from now. We don't know, and that's the beauty of it. As Peter is saying, get ready as if it were to happen at any time. Jesus tells us that we can expect many of the things that we see today to happen that are happening right now. Mark chapter 13, verse 7. And that the one who endures to the end will be saved. The whole tone and tenor of the New Testament is there is an end coming to all of this destruction, all of this evil, all of this prejudice, all of this violence. There is an end coming, and I'm bringing it. But the one who endures to that moment, that's the one who's going to see it. The end of all things is good news to you and me, if we're believers, if we're followers of Christ. And yet, not only is it good news, but it's also sobering news that we need to think clearly and that the age in which we live in is not a moment or an environment for us to fear or be afraid, but an opportunity for the church to rise. And so Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. Good things are coming your way after the bad things. So I want you to think clearly and sober-minded. Why? I think Peter gives us three things. The reason that our minds are to be ready to engage, the reason that the Christian's mind is to be uh, clear-thinking and sober-minded are for three things. One, he tells us right off the bat, I want you to be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The Christian must be ready to pray. Well, oh, I've seen a few interactions here and there uh, you know, throughout the months, whenever something very difficult happens within our society, um, Christians rightly begin to pray. In the public sphere, we often see that, whether it's in a tweet or a Facebook post from perhaps a politician who wishes thoughts and prayers to those who have been hurt. And I've seen this reaction. I don't want your thoughts and your prayers. I want you to do something about it. Stop thinking and praying and start changing the way that things are. It's this emotional sentiment that I, I, I partly sympathize with. If all we're doing is just mouthing words that don't mean anything to the people around us, if the church is just saying stuff that they don't mean, while everyone around them is hurting inside and out, then yes, I am sympathetic towards this. And listen, praying does not mean that we as Christians must avoid social issues to simply pray. Guys, we must be at the front line of social issues. How is the city of Santa Barbara going to see that the gospel is good news unless they see that it touches them tangibly where they hurt socially? But certainly we must pray. And only if prayer is simply mouthing words. Now, for some people in the public realm, maybe they are just saying that as a gesture. But Christians do not pray as a mere gesture. We believe that prayer is not just a pat on the back of someone who is hurting. It is actually a means of changing the way that things are. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, that we don't battle the same way that other people battle. We don't use swords, and we don't use guns. We don't even use legislation. Other people use those things. That's fine for them. But believers' first course of action is different. He says, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power for the destruction of strongholds. Paul is speaking about spiritual strongholds. Do you think there's any spiritual strongholds in the city of Santa Barbara? (laughs) She wanted alphabetically? I mean, (laughs) they're all over the place. You could add to that how, how much worse it is than your typical city that here in Santa Barbara we gloss over spiritual strongholds because of this veneer that things are okay. Santa Barbara is hard to engage in spiritual warfare even though it's real and it's there because we are fooled into thinking that we have everything here that we need. You go to Detroit or Los Angeles or New York City, and you you just understand, yeah, spiritual warfare. You come to Santa Barbara, and you are like, it's all good. <laughs> got the mountains, got the beach, the flowers, peonies. I mean, it's awesome. I was just this is my dream. But make no mistake, make no mistake, brothers and sisters. Santa Barbara needs Jesus. And Satan is real. And he is roaming around this city looking for who he can devour. And yet Christ, who rose from the dead and is exalted at the right hand of God, calls the church to stay. One of our weapons in our spiritual battle is prayer. James, the apostle, half-brother of Jesus, would later say, The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, or woman. He's not referring to thoughts and prayers as we usually refer to thoughts and prayers. I give you my thoughts and prayers, although that that may make us feel better. It's perhaps an appropriate thing to say. James is speaking entirely about something else. He's saying your prayer can do things here in Santa Barbara and in the nation and in the world. In the chapter prior, in James chapter 4, verse 2, he said, the negative corollary, he says, you do not have what you need because you didn't ask for it. So on one hand, we see that we have this weapon, the spiritual weapon of prayer in which we can ask God for his will to be done and it will be done right before us. And on the opposite side of that coin, we are told that we won't have certain things because we did not ask for them. Are you praying for your city? Are you praying for this church? Are you praying for your kids when you lay them down to go to bed? Are you praying for your spouse? Are you praying for your own soul? Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. First course of action, get ready to pray. We believe that prayer changes things. That's why we have prayer meetings. That's why we have prayer teams. That's why we intercede. That's why we have classes on prayer. That's why we teach on prayer. Most of all, that's why we're always praying. Because we believe that if there's one thing a Christian can do that can change the course of history, it's ask God. Ask God to move powerfully on their behalf. I tremble to think of what might happen if most of you took that seriously. I get chills thinking about what our city might look like if some of you just tried it. Like a kid asking their dad for a popsicle. You're asking your Father for his kingdom. Not only do we believe that prayer changes things, we also believe that prayer changes us. It's kind of part part of the package, right? God is changing everything, he's changing you too. He's not going to leave you the way that you are. And so, when we pray, we're not just speaking about praying for other things, but we're also speaking about spending time in the presence of God. In these moments where we're afraid, where we're confused, where we're tumultuous, where our hearts within us are overwhelmed, lead us to the rock that is higher than I. Lead us to that, pray, that place where maybe you don't even have words to say, but you are in his presence, being with him. Prayer. <clears throat> this section of scripture with Peter This focus starts with a healthy relationship with God. You see that? Saying the end of all things is at hand, so here's what I want you to do. Think clearly, be with God. Talk to him, be with him, know him. Ask him for crazy outlandish things. And now at this point, he's going to turn all of his attention away from us and God to us and each other. We've seen how we need to respond, right? To those in our city who might act out in a hostile fashion towards us, that's been like chapter 2 all the way through the first part of chapter 4. How do we engage in a culture that doesn't, they're not going in the same direction, right? How do we love them but intentionally reach them? That's been many chapters. But up until this point, we haven't really spoken about how Christians are to interact with one another. We have that one section of scripture, I think it was in chapter 2, that said the church is a bunch of believers, It's not one person, nor are you one person by yourself, but we are bound together by baptism in the Holy Spirit. We belong together in a very real sense, not just when we meet in this this house, but scattered all over the city. We, We are intricately connected to one another by the power of the gospel. And so now, he goes on to tell us, here's how you are to treat one another to be the most potent in your engagement with the city around you. This is awesome. Look at what he says. Number one, I, we could say, after he says you must pray, he would then say you must love. Getting that from verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Loving earnestly. The word that Peter uses for loving earnestly means to hold oneself to a thing, love, to lay hold of that thing, to adhere to it or cling to it, as if that was your only course of action, your only alternative, This word that he's using is in the the present active sense, meaning that it's not something you do once, but it's something you are continuing to to do. So imagine just this this word usage that Peter is speaking of, where I want you to adhere to, continue to cling to love for each other over and over and over. It's as if he's describing love as something that you practice. And we have to, right? Because I tried yesterday and I failed miserably. Peter would just say, hey, keep doing it. As you continue to do it, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll grow in the practice of love. The essence of what Peter is saying, I think, is practice your love for one another until you're good at it. And until you create an environment within the body of Christ that will affect the city around you. Why do this? This is his next line, end of verse eight. Because love is covers a multitude of sins. (laughs) Love covers a multitude of sins. I think that what Peter is saying here is that our ability to love one another as we practice it and as we get better at it, our ability to love allows us to look over even some of the worst mistakes that people make towards us. That as we're growing in love towards one another, I am all of a sudden growing less growing less dependent on my need to be vindicated by something that you've done to me as i am practicing love towards you i am also simultaneously practicing not needing to be vindicated not needing vengeance able to release unforgiveness able to release anger those things are connected to one another Earnestly loving, as, as Peter puts it, seems to be something that would cultivate an environment where wrongs are easily let go. Can you imagine a family like that? A big old extended family where people wrong each other and sin against each other and hurt each other's feelings as is natural because we're broken people. But uh, your immediate and habitual reaction is to be like, probably, that's all right. It probably didn't mean it. I'm going to think the best about them. Like that was your immediate reaction. Can you imagine if that was what happened in the church? In the life of the church? This is an environment that Peter, the Apostle Peter is calling the church to be. A place where that actually happens by second nature. Because we have been practicing love. Now, uh, clarifying point this isn't saying you know when we say love covers a multitude of sins we're not saying out with accountability or out with personal responsibility or out with consequences those are all real things that we have to deal with in other words you may have heard someone perhaps you have said it yourself whenever someone gets mad at you you might use a verse like this like oh well love covers a multitude of sins Maybe you did it at your job, like you showed up uh, late for the 10th time in a row and your boss is like angry and you're like, love covers a multitude of sins. Not true. There are consequences to our behavior. There's also personal responsibility that we have to take. We can't use passages like this to cop out of that personal responsibility. And there's accountability where people can come into our lives that, that, that we've set up relationally to speak into areas in which we need to grow. That's not what Peter's talking about. Peter is speaking about what this verse is provoking is that innate tendency in all of us to harbor grudges towards other people. Peter's going after grudges. Some of the worst days in my life were when I was uncontrollably angry at somebody. I'm not speaking about just typical anger. Anger is not itself a sin. Paul said in Ephesians 5, uh, in your anger, uh, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your sin. I think that last line refers to unforgiveness. When anger turns into unforgiveness, and that's resentment. Some of my worst days in life, when I was the most sick, spiritually, emotionally, even physically, was when, was when I was uncontrollably angry or unforgiving towards someone else. Usually another Christian. I at one time uh, tried to examine my own heart, which is a very difficult thing. I do not uh, recommend that. But I was just like, why am I so angry at this person? And I would just get irritated, not just that person, but the next person. I would just get easily irritated and it was as if I, I was getting better at holding grudges. Where it used to be this long, prolonged process years later, it would just happen. Someone would do something and I'd be like, Ugh. I'd go home and I'd replay what they did to me in, their, in my mind and I'd, I'd replay how I would have reacted if I, was, if I was more quick and witty and uh, I, I would replay in my mind what I was going to do to them and I, I realized in that moment That I hold grudges, even though the Bible says not to do that, right? Why do I do the things that I I do? At least for me personally, I hold grudges as a way of punishing that person in my own heart, replaying what they did to me, how I would react, what I'm going to do to them. It's as if I am trying to punish that person in the quietness of my heart. And the crazy thing is, when we do that, it never hurts the person that we're angry at. Have you noticed that? (laughs) You're just unforgiving. You've been holding this grudge against someone, and you're just like, and they have no clue. You walk into them on the street, and they're like, hey, how you doing, Chris? I'm doing great, but you're probably falling apart because of what I've been doing to you in here. They're like, "Ah, see you later. And yet, meanwhile, I am just being destroyed by the poison of resentment in my own heart. This isn't just a call to engage culture in a missional way. This is a call to your personal freedom. When Peter says that love has the ability to, uh, uh, to let wrongs go, he's also speaking about your personal freedom, that you don't have to live in bondage to bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment. This is a call away from the disease that anger often becomes. And it starts with covering people's faults in our minds. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 5 that love does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Listen to this. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love. When love is here... You have this ability, this growing ability to let things go. That is a talent and a gift that I desperately want. Perhaps you do too. Or perhaps you don't. Maybe you're in the middle of a grudge right now and you're like, I'm cool. Kind of like it. Kind of hate that person. Kind of like how I feel about them. Going to stay here for a while, maybe 10 years. Listen, not only does bitterness tear you apart, and it is one of those things that Peter said earlier, it's that passion of the flesh that wages war against your soul. It's going to destroy you. I'm telling you right now, on the authority of God's word, bitterness will destroy you. And I've been destroyed, hoping that someone will listen to me and not do that. But it won't just destroy you. To disregard these passages is to allow the disease of resentment entrance into our church. That you can't experience, you can't experience resentment and bitterness in a vacuum. It's going to affect me too. And the person sitting next to you, and the person sitting across from you, bitterness is a poison that affects entire communities. So now I'm not just asking you for your own sake. I'm asking you for each other's sake. Perhaps you've done this. Perhaps you're in the middle of bondage to anger and bitterness and unforgiveness. The promise of the gospel is extended to you as it always has been. You can be freed from this. You can begin a long journey of releasing it to God today. But you might be asking yourself, why would I want to do that? I don't want to let stuff go. A person doesn't deserve for me to let stuff go. I want to punish him a little, uh, a little more. Even if it doesn't hurt him, at least I get the satisfaction of simmering in my anger. Why would I want to let stuff go? Because love can soften the tension in a room. There's one reason. I've got a couple. You might be the very peacemaker that Paul spoke about. I think in the letter to the Romans who's able to enter into a tense environment and a room and shut it down. Love has the ability to take a tense situation and soften it to the point of normal dialogue. I love that proverb, Proverbs 15 verse 1, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Have you ever tried that? Go into a situation that is just bubbling with conflict and and intensity. And maybe that intensity, especially if that intensity is geared towards you, and just say something so nice and refreshing. Say something that maybe is at your own expense and that blesses the other person. Maybe take them completely off guard and see what happens. Or you could try this. Just start accusing that person. Because there's the other part of the verse. Harsh word stirs up anger. And then see what happens. (laughs) Just an experiment for the church to try all week. (laughs) Going to Eureka Burger and see a bunch of Christians just yelling at each other. It would be awesome. Love can soften the tension in the room. You want to be a peacemaker? Just try some of this stuff. Not only that, but love can actually break Huge cycles of bitterness in families, in churches, in neighborhoods, in the workplace. Bitterness is a strange and terrifying thing. It can cause angry people to be completely blind to their own sin. And simultaneously completely deaf to the grievances of the other. Have you noticed that when you've gotten in a a big old fight? The person across from you might be hurt by you, you might be hurt by them, but no one's listening to the other person. All you're thinking about is getting your words out, and the other person, all they're thinking about is getting their words out, and you're just hurting each other, driving yourselves deeper and deeper down into that cycle. And I've seen where both sides in a conflict had been hurt, both had valid grievances, and yet we're so angry and embittered with each other that it was nearly impossible for them to even hear the most reasonable suggestion from the other party. When both sides were like this, terrible, terrible nightmare. that breaks apart friendships, pulls people apart, pulls other people in. No wonder Paul was so adamant about us not letting the sun go down on our anger. Be angry if you have to, but don't be angry for a long time. It has this ability to dig into your soul and keep itself there and to grow into a monster. No wonder, Peter says, we must practice love. Bitterness can also destroy a church. But love, and this is Peter's point, Love that is eagerly practiced can break that very cycle. And sometimes it just takes one person who's over themselves and is willing to bite the bullet and to practice love. Perhaps you're hearing this and you're like, this is all great, but you know, what is that? What is love? Love is one of those words, even though it's deeply meaningful and rich uh, in the Bible. For us, it can maybe sometimes seem abstract, like, just love everybody. What does that even mean? What does love really look like in a context like this? Well, Peter, God bless him, actually explains a little more practically how we can start doing this. What is love? Well, this isn't the only thing that love is, but he gives us a, a few ways to start to walk in it. One is hospitality. Hospitality. Kind of a weird one to throw in there. We've been talking about everything from terrorism to, from racism to uh, internal conflicts. And uh, Peter lobs this bomb. Hospitality. What does that have to do with anything? He says in verse 9, show hospitality. How do we practice love? Here's one way. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. The word hospitality comes from two different Greek words. Philos, meaning friend. And xenos, meaning stranger. It means literally to be generous to strangers or generous to guests. Hospitality, if you look at it, uh, not just here but in the rest of the New Testament, even the Old Testament, and see how it's practiced, it always seems to have two different things in its pattern. One, it speaks of an opening of space for friendship to take place. And two, it involves inviting a stranger into that space. What is biblical hospitality? Space and strangers. Opening space for friendship. Inviting strangers into that space. One of the most powerful tools in the Christian's arsenal in the entire Bible. Read the Gospel of Luke just looking for how Jesus did this. Invaded people's space. Or invited people into his space. Look at how much he did it. Incredibly powerful. Here's what I mean when I say opening space for friendship. To really get uh, at the idea of New Testament hospitality, you have, to go, you have to have an understanding of space. Space is sacred and private, right? Even in Santa Barbara, it's like the one thing in Santa Barbara that's mine. I'll let you ride in my car. I'll let you play basketball with me. We can go to the gym together, but my living room, Mine. Some of you are like I don't even have a living room. I live in a studio. But if I have a living room, if I had a living room, it would be mine. It is that privatized space that we keep others out of. It's where we hide all of our stuff, including the things inside that we don't want other people to see. We don't want to share, and it is that very idea of sharing space that it is at the heart of following Jesus in the New Testament. Many of us can wave high at somebody from afar. So maybe when you think of love, you're like, I said, I I introduced myself to someone the other day. But that type of friendship gives us a place to hide from people. It allows us to go home to our space, to our hideaway, and think that we were hospitable. But what we see in the Bible is not a pat on the back or a wave from across the street or across the church, it is an invitation to invade our space. That is, at the idea of biblical friendship and hospitality. You might say, well, my space isn't even big enough. I live in Santa Barbara. I could pay $5,000 and I live in a kitchenette. That's where my bed is, too. Like I literally live in the kitchenette. Or maybe you're like, I have a you know, I have some space, but it's just always dirty and I don't want people to see my mess and la da la. You know what? If I could free you from that, hospitality is not the same as entertainment. Perhaps that's where we always get the pressure to perform. Oh, I gotta spruce up my house and set out dishes and have everything nice and my kids gotta be at their best behavior. No, 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 no. All you're doing is inviting people into that messy space hospitality, not entertainment. Now, caveat, if you, you know, if you need to clean your house, it's okay to clean your house. If you have like a home group and you own like nine cats, you know, maybe Febreze? I don't know, <laughs> whatever. <clears throat> but release yourself from the pressure. This isn't entertainment. This is this is Hospitality. We open up a space for friendship and then we invite the stranger into that space. Xenos, the stranger. This word can also mean foreigner. It can, it can mean resident alien. It can also mean immigrant. Someone who does not belong to or have a space or a place of their own. It can be as literal as a refugee in Syria. It can be as metaphorical as someone that you met at Trader Joe's. But they are, they're isolated. One of the most powerful things you could do to someone like that is to bring them into your space, that sacred space. Luke chapter 14, verse 13 through 14, Jesus said, But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, Jesus isn't saying you can never throw a party with your friends. You can never throw a party with your spouse. Like, that's just biblical community. What he's saying here is if you want to practice hospitality, you got to do it a little bit differently. Don't invite the people. If I can summarize what Jesus is saying, he's essentially saying don't invite people who will throw you a party the next weekend. Don't invite people that will do something for you the next week, who can return the favor, who can give you a special connection. That's fine if you want to hang out with them, but if you want to practice hospitality, do it to someone who can never repay you, for your repayment will be when the kingdom comes. Why would we do this? This type of hospitality is so rooted in the story of Israel because. Israel themselves were displaced. They started out with no home and no place and they were rescued out of slavery by their God. And in Exodus chapter 23 verse 9, God reminds them of their refugee status. He reminds them that they were sojourners, that they were exiles, that they still are. Just as Peter says, we believers are exiles in a certain way. And he says to them, remember, remember when you were there? You shall not oppress a stranger since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger for you are also strangers in the land of Egypt. One author Christine Pohl uh, writes in her book on hospitality, she says, when we offer hospitality to strangers, we welcome them into a place to which we are somehow connected, a space that has meaning and value to us. And in the book of Exodus, we see that, that, uh, that, that inviting into that space should come from a deep sense of remembering I used to be there too and God gave me a home I'm going to share my home with other people any community that does not practice hospitality is a clique there must be a way in be careful also of Homogeneity, I think I said that right. Communities that are homogenous. If you look around at everyone that you spend your time with and they look just like you, act just like you, do great things for you, you might be going down that path. True hospitality is always extended to those who cannot benefit you. That's the beauty of it. And when we invite the stranger into the space we so value, it's not as a guest, it's not as a client, nor is it as a problem to be solved. Jesus tells us we're to invite people into our space as though it were Christ himself. Can I just read you that passage? It's like, it's like 10 verses, but it is beautiful. It's Jesus himself. It's in Matthew 25, verse 31, I'm almost done here. Just have like 40 more minutes. (laughs) When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations. And He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. And I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, "Lord, when did you see when did when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you a drink? And when would, did we see you strain, uh, see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you?" And the king will answer them, "Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me." Invite guests into your house as though they were Christ. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did any of those things happen? Verse 45. Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you didn't do it to me. I don't know what to do with that. Other than to start opening my door (laughs) to the poor and to the weary. This passage in Peter, even though certainly ministry to the poor includes people all over the world. This particular passage is to people in the church. So this is a call on us to open up our space, not just to our friends, but to brothers and sisters in Christ who are lacking a space. And to do it not as clients, not as guests even, certainly not as problems to be solved by us, but as though it were Jesus Christ entering our space himself. Obviously, you can use your home to do that. We can do that in the church setting, just small little interactions. What if you don't have a home? (laughs) What if you just live in someone's garage? Think about hospitality as a way even of interacting with people on the fly. If it refers to opening up space for that other person to feel like they belong, what, what might that look like when you're just interacting with somebody at the grocery store? You don't need a living room. I want us to think creatively about this in our day-to-day interactions. Even the way that you look at someone can be hospitable. If it's just a matter of inviting someone into your space, it might be nothing more than a little eye contact. It could be something as simple as a smile. I've noticed that I always walk with my head down just because I'm thinking, and I don't know why, but I think better when my head is down. (laughs) And I've noticed what that's done to people. It might just be in my head, but there's almost this feeling of tenseness, like I'm, I'm closing them out. I've also noticed that when I make eye contact with people, smiling at them, even saying their names, their eyes light up. Is it possible that we can practice hospitality on the fly? I think so. If it means that we're just inviting people into our space. I have two more pages to go through, but I'm out of time. I'm just going to end right there. Is that cool? Because I want us to stay in this place of space. Love looks like a safe space for other believers to be served. Love looks like opening up a safe space for other believers to belong. This could be your home. This could be your introversion. It could be your family. It could be the gym. It could be the ocean. Wherever your safe space is, there is power in inviting people into it. This is exactly what happened to us in Christ. For those of you that might be having a hard time wrapping your minds about it, All you need to do during our time of worship this morning is to fix your eyes on how you were separated from God and he brought you into his space. Ephesians 2.12, remember that you were at that time separated from Jesus, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And yet you have been brought near. Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The gospel is that great reversal where people like you and I were refugees from God and we have been brought into the family of God. That should change the way that you look at the city, the way that you look at strangers, the way that you look at your context and even the way that you look at yourself. Truly, when I think about it, I am not all that impressive. I'm an immigrant who's been brought into the family of God by grace. I can't teach uh, basically the last half of this paragraph, but God forgive me. I ran out of time. You could just read it. It's pretty straightforward. (laughs) But I do want to quote the last part. It's when Peter goes off the deep end and starts praising God. He says at the end of our, our text, In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is what we often call a doxology, just uh, an expression of praise to wrap something up. Peter and Paul always seem to close these tangents that they go on with an exuberant outflow of praise. It's as if they understood the gospel and the power of God so deeply that they just had to stop for a moment and say, praise God. Oh, glory and dominion and power to the risen Christ. So maybe we could just end with that. Maybe we can just transition as the worship team, rest of the worship team comes up this morning. (laughs) Maybe we can just be in that place together, in a shared space and say to the Lord, I want to meditate on you so much that the things that you do stir up in me this moment of praise. And as we get filled afresh with the power of God, maybe we be sent out from this house and change our, our spaces and our environments around us. Amen.